Welcome to Watershed Chats. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. They can be turning points that define our shared history. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet Ocean. Zenith Virago is founder of the Natural Death Care Center, where she helps to guide people through the process of dying, death, and bereavement. As water people, most of us dance the line with risk regularly, and we know how alive we feel in spaces that we can't control, like the ocean. It's that sense of vulnerability and being part of a wild space that can offer us such a healthy respect for death and a living appreciation for life. As a death walker, Zenith challenges us all to consider death as an inherent part of life. Her work raises important questions about the social and environmental impacts of our approaches to death and dying. And in these uncertain times, more than ever, Zenith empowers us all to consider what it means to die well. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bundjalung and Gubby Gubby nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. So what I find myself working for after 25 years of working with people is to assist people to die well and for healthier bereavement. And, you know, death is really an inside job. It's really about, it doesn't matter whether you've got, you know, beautiful surroundings, candles, music, you're a comfortable bed. You can have all that, but if you're terrified on the inside and afraid or unsettled or uh, fearful or unfinished, then none of that will matter what's happening on the outside. So it's really about living, knowing that you will die either at a later date or even tomorrow. So for most of my life since I was 16... A friend of mine died, a, a dear school friend. And from that point on, I've really lived my life that I could die tomorrow. But once I turned 56, now I'm 63, I started to think, oh, yeah, really, I need to reframe that. I could die today. Mm. And so I just really try and make sure that I'm living how I want to live. I'm speaking how I want to speak. Uh, I want to behave well. And I want to be ready to die. I don't want to die. Obviously, I've got a great life. But what I know is that if I die suddenly like that in the ocean or somewhere else, then my friends are going to say, wow, she really lived that life. And, you know, we're sad that she's gone, but she would have been ready for that moment. Mm. And that will bring a great comfort to them. So they'll be sad that I'm missing, but they won't be heartbroken. And especially if I die in the ocean, because it's something I love. And my life would be much less if I did not have the ocean every day. And I think extreme sports people have a lot to teach people around death. Because when they die in the pursuit of their sport or their joy, their families are on TV and they're not saying, 
you know, then they're weeping and they're sad and they're in that loss, but they're also saying they died doing something that they love. But it also means they would have had really open and honest conversation together about the possibility and the risk of that activity. And they would have really faced that together and discussed how they would feel about it. Of course, you can't know until it's happening to you. But that seems to bring a great comfort to those people. And, and your know, most surviving partners and friends find some comfort in the fact that they've died doing something that they love. And that contributes towards a healthier bereavement. So you have to be in the loss. You have to feel all the emotions that go with it. But most of those emotions are love transformed. So I think that's a really helpful way to look at things because, you know, you can't do bereavement. You can't do grief. It has to do you. You have to be in it till it's done with you. It's a bit like when you get dumped by a wave, you know, and it's a big wave and you just have to be in that white water, be in that tumult until you come up for air and find yourself in calmer waters and hopefully get to the shore, not too much damage. And I think that's what, you know, losing someone that you love can be like that. But it's also for the person who's dying has to really look at their own life. And most people who've lived a really full life, when they find out they're dying, they're ready for that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are afraid to die because they've been afraid to live. And that's a very sad state of affairs. That's big. Yeah. Zenith, what do you feel are the ramifications of being afraid to live? I think it's different for each person because life offers us all different things. So some people will have what some people might consider a small life. They might just be in a family situation or a single situation. Uh, They might never leave the town they grew up in. But on the inside, they may have a really rich, diverse life. So it's not really about what you do. It's about who you become, I think and what you contribute. So often at funerals I find myself saying something like, you know, we're all here for a short moment in the big scheme of things. You know, we're born, we live our life, we love, we are loved. Hopefully we're of benefit to others and we contribute something to the world and then we die. And then we become a memory or a legacy or something else. So it's not really about what you achieve so much I think it's the quality of who you become and how loved you are but some people live in a constant contraction where they're afraid to take a step or to speak out and sometimes that's because they've been damaged as a young person and we're all fully aware of how frequent that damage can be but we're also living in a patriarchy and so you know people of color and women and anybody who's different from that dominant paradigm experiences life in that conditioning. And so a lot of people never get to become the fullness of who they are. And our world is suffering from that patriarchal dominant approach. And, you know, the climate crisis is, you know, it's a crime against humanity and the planet 
that people in positions of power have been so terrified and so controlling and so greedy and so so many things mm. to not take note, not to be prepared to look for seven generations, to look out for their own children even, never mind those that are yet to come. Uh, so I'm fascinated to see whether what's happening to the world at the moment, as we are in the COVID experience, if that is going to make some really big fundamental change for people and hopefully for young people that they will motivate themselves into something and the only way it's going to change is either by a revolution or by voting but you have to have someone to vote for so people are going to have to stand up and live fully for what they believe in and for what they want to save and what they want to protect into the future mm. you talk a lot about dying well and so for me that implies the possibility that we've not been doing death so well what does the dominant approach of our culture to death say about who we are when people look at death often it's very influenced by our lives by our culture conditioning but also by religion probably religion has the strongest influence mm -hmm. on that and so a lot of people who are much more uh, less identified with a religious set of beliefs and are much more in tune with nature, I would say are much more able to die well. I mean, these are sweeping generalizations, but anyway, I'm going to make them. <laughs> but, of course, if you have a rule book and you have a set of beliefs that go with that book and teachers who are teaching that, then you're conditioned into that. And some religions seem like an insurance policy for death where if you're a good person, according to that set of rules, you'll go to this destination at the end. But no one knows what happens when we die. You know, we live and we die and we love in the great mystery. And we can't even work out what it is that is the living part of us. So we know we're not our body. We know we're not our mind. We know we're not our emotions. We are some sort of life force, we're some sort of spark, we're some sort of consciousness or essence. But no one can define that. But it's that undefinable part that people believe lives on and energy doesn't die, it transforms into something else. And so I think just as we've lost touch with nature and the planet, we've lost touch with our own and, you know, you've got people who want to live forever, people who are freezing their bodies in you know, cryogenics or something where they think they're going to be come back into that. Even some of the religions are, you know, you have to be buried so that God will raise you up and your consciousness will come back into that body, even though it's been under the ground for however many years. It's sort of a madness. And... Um, I mean, if it was a children's story, it would sort of beg a belief. But anyway, somehow or other, people have bought that. Um, and I think a lot of that is some people have faith and it is a help, and some people it's a hindrance. And, you know, if you're God-fearing, if you feel that you're going to be judged by your God and you did something bad that no one knew about and you've kept it a secret forever, then people are fearful 
and um, that they're going to be they're going to pay for that at the end of their lives. So I think it's a very complex question, and it's different for everybody. But what I would say to counterbalance that is, you know, the more honest you are, the freer you are with your emotions. The more work you do, the more loving you are, the kinder you are. Um, the more you grow integrity and courage and wisdom, then the more inclined you are to be accepting of death. And then you'll be able to have those conversations with the people that you love as you're going. And, you know, we all have a concept that we're going to grow old and then we're going to die. And I think grandparents, part of their role is to teach their grandchildren what it means to die in order and as preparation for when their parents die. Mm. So that's a nice orderly approach to it. We can all, you know, we're all okay with that. But of course what we've got now is, you know, rampant disease from poison and pollution. And we've got, you know, accidents. uh, We've got murder. We've got a large amount of people killing themselves. Texting and driving is an insane killer in Australia. A range range of different things. And so people are dying much younger and not in what we consider to be the natural order of things. But years ago, a lot of babies died at birth, a lot of mothers died in childbirth, a lot of children died before they were five years old from different diseases. So it's a relatively recent attitude that, you know, children shouldn't die and it's the worst thing in the world. So... You know, it's only since actually vaccination and um, sanitising and, um, you know, proper toilets that that's been the case up until relatively recently it wasn't. Are we amongst the most um, insulated from death in terms of cultures that you've witnessed? I, fe- I haven't even, I haven't really had a first-hand experience with wow. someone. I love dying that. Well, that's a blessing and a curse. I know. Yeah. I'm, my mom's sort of dancing the line. That's and She right. has been for a few years. Um, well, I would probably say that some Americans probably are in the worst position, worse than England, worse than other white you know, countries. A lot of countries where people are much more hands-on much less medicated, much less hospitalised, are really, you know, they're caring for their own dying and people die at a higher rate and so they're gaining a familiarity with that loss, you know, and their expectations of a long life are different. Mm. But in America, for example, the, the culture of embalming everybody means that when you see someone who's died you're not actually seeing a dead body, you're seeing an embalmed body. So you're not really experiencing death in its natural form. Even death is interfered with and people are preserved, just like they're full of food that's got full of preservatives. So embalming, it actually does a disservice to the people left behind because when they look at that person, they look well and they, you know, they're, full of colour, whereas here embalming is not a very popular thing. People only do it if they're going to be buried above ground or they have to travel interstate sometimes. Mm. So when people here see a dead body, 
they're looking at death, they're looking at a body that has died, and it's very clear to see that that body is empty, that the life force of that person is gone. So even though we're most familiar with the physical form and it's it's who we love, especially if we've given birth to that or it's our lover and we've you know, been intimate with that body, but you can children see it really clearly. They'll come to the coffin and they'll look in and they'll say, oh, that's not Lauren, she's not there. And because it's so clear to them that it's empty, it's not the person, it's just an empty body. And often adults are standing there when children say that and you can see them (gasps) take a breath, but it brings them into that reality and children are so wonderful around death. You know, they're poking, they're prodding, they're, you know, they're touching, they're asking the questions because their emotional development is, they're very present to what's in front of them with a curiosity, not with an emotional package, which most adults are. Mm. That um, reminds me of another topic I really wanted to broach with you, <laughs> which is the environmental impact of death. I was reading some of the statistics about how much, um, so about a million pounds of metal, wood, and concrete are put into the earth each year in the U.S. alone. That's enough material to build the Golden Gate Bridge every year, put into well, the ground as part of funeral services, um, burying the dead. And again, Americans have the most extreme approach to putting the body in the ground. So, you know, first of all, they've embalmed the body. Then they've put it in a coffin, which is sometimes lined with lead. And then that coffin goes into a concrete vault. And then it's put a concrete slab on it. But that is not normal. That doesn't happen almost anywhere else in the world. Every time. So a lot of people are buried in fabric straight into the ground. So the body will decompose down. It will become nutrient for the planet. It doesn't have to go through a plastic or metal lining inside the coffin. It doesn't have a veneer. It's not full of glue, which is what most cheap coffins are. So cardboard coffins, you know, a shroud. It's in Australia, for example, in many states, it's possible to be buried in a shroud Mm. on religious or community grounds. So that's a change in the law in the last 10 years where if you were, you know, Muslims and other, some other religions, you know, aren't buried in a coffin. Mm. They go straight into the ground. And a lot of environmentalists, a lot of hippies, a lot of anybody who's into nature wanted to do that. And I probably have a conversation like that once a week with someone. And we're, I'm part of a group to get a natural burial ground here in the Byron Shire. But there are many now all over the place. And those bodies, you know, don't take up any additional resources and they become food if they're not buried too deep. So then they become food for, you know, any creatures in the soil and they're contributing to the soil. So, for example, in China, when you travel through the countryside there, you often see burial mounds in the rice fields and it's those mounds are really a richer green because that rice is being grown on the bodies of the farmers of that field and no one worries about that. Mm. Yeah. I was reading about the Urban Death Project in the US. Mm, I, that's right. Yeah, they're talking about 
composting bodies and turning it into soil and trying to warm people up to the idea of the fact that our bodies, even after death, are life-giving. That's right. I know, Katrina, and the Urban Death Project is the best name for that. They've changed it, actually, to Recompose. Mm. But if you live in land, in nature, in areas where you can be buried straight into the ground, you don't need that. But the difference in America from that first one I've just explained about embalming and concrete to that is so radically different. But in most other places, there isn't that extreme. It's somewhere in the middle. But Katrina Spade has really captured the imagination of lots of people and it's very, people are asking me and I say, you don't need to go into a um, a cylinder in a wall with other people. You can go straight into the ground here. You know, you can be buried on private land in a lot of shires and council areas in Australia and in other countries. You can be buried on your own land if it meets the requirements. And a lot of the time, it's only a property. You only have to be over five hectares. Mm. I feel like we've handed over a lot of our power when it comes to death and dying to the medicalization of unwell people where, mm. you know, in, in a medicalized setting, death is kind of considered a failure. Exactly. Yeah. So if we, if we hold that position as a, as a culture, as a society, as a patriarchy, then, you know, if you see death as a failure, then everything that goes with it needs to be, you know, dealt with efficiently and quickly. And what has happened over the last, you know, 100 years or so, is that, or more than that, is that the funeral industry has grown up and generally it's been run by men because women weren't allowed to work or to allow to be doing anything other than menial tasks. So and men have not been so great with emotions. And so the funeral industry in particular has really kept uh, control of that and sort of put people on a conveyor belt as as quickly as possible and out the other side with as least emotional response. But in other countries, you know, people are wailing, you know, people are crying, men and women, and there's big expressions. And, you know, the Jewish culture, for example, has a whole process for the seven days after. Yeah, so... I think you really have to find your own way, but familiarization, the more familiar you become, the more empowered you can become because you're not shocked by it. And that's one of the great things that's happened here in the last 25 years. And now I spend most of my time teaching and traveling about death and dying, empowering people with information, knowledge, you know, guidance, wisdom, experience, familiarity and pre-need so that they're sitting on that information without an emotional response so when they do need it or they become a resource for themselves for their family or even for neighbors and especially around children where I'm saying to people you know really it'd be great and you're going to probably reel at this as young parents but uh, you know, for one cup of tea a day to just sit and contemplate how it might be for your child to die, which, of course, is very shocking and people, it's the last thing they want to even think about. But if you can allow yourself to to grow a capacity that that may possibly happen, even if it never happens to you, 
you will be able to be a resource for someone else in your small group of other young parents if that happens. When everyone else is awash with, oh my God, it's terrible for that family and it's our worst nightmare. You might be the person who can be able to go in and say, I'm standing here with you because you've just grown a capacity, even if it's small. But everybody else will be coming in and crying all over that person. And you might be the person to offer them a hand to help them stand up in that experience. And that's that's what I'm doing for lots of people when they're in an unfamiliar or challenging, difficult situation. I'm just willing to walk with them to assist them in any way I can, but they have to do it themselves. It's their journey, it's their loss, it's their whole family that are affected by that. But I'm doing for people what I would want someone to do for me if I was a person in those situations. And you you really don't need to be an expert. You just need to be willing to stand up and support someone and not suck anything from them and not need them to make you feel better because you feel awash or you feel scared about your little family. Mm. So the more we exercise a capacity to hold things that we don't want to happen, the more assistance we can be to ourselves, to the people that we love in our own little family and to our community. Mm, I love hearing that, Zenith, and the, the familiarity aspect of what you're talking about being something that you can cultivate, Mm. you know, by just considering and having, I guess, the courage to consider such things as uh, young parents losing their child. Mm. And I guess in our experience, you know, when we had our little boy Minnow, he came in in a very rough fashion and it was very turbulent and and scary and, and dangerous and us being able to talk with other parents who had been through similar things Mm. was just so crucial to weathering that storm. And then learning, you know, of other friends who who have lost a child Mm. and seeing how valuable they are in Mm. community clusters and how being able to just hug another person who's been through or going through that yeah, it is and, so and what deep. they know is you can't make it better for anybody mm. else, but you can be there alongside people. You can offer a hand. You can have someone's back. You know, you can, if, if they stumble, you're there with them. But you're just the willingness to show up and be there, and growing courage is one of the most precious and meaningful things we can do with our life, whatever that looks like for each person. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just a little bit, sometimes it's big waves, you know, but you have to grow that capacity to walk into situations that are challenging or you find yourself in those situations. Mm -hmm. But I know when, my children all alive, my grandchildren, but so I know if I meet people whose children have died, I connect them to someone else who's had that experience. And those people don't even talk to each other. They just take one look at each other and you can feel this whole conversation happening just in their body language, mm. in, the t- in their heart opening to those people. And, you know, that's all people need. They just need to be met in that experience without needing 
anything taken from them. Mm. And, you know, people are so incredibly courageous and capable. Families, you know, things that the day before you think you wouldn't survive, you can find yourself, you're living in that. And it's a bit like birthing. It's almost easier to be the mother birthing than the partner accompanying because you're just in it. Whereas when you're the accompanier, whatever, you're watching that person that you love suffer and um, that can be challenging, but you just have to be in it mm. as, as best you can. Mm. Zen, I rewatched your film last night, Zen and the Art of Dying, and one of the most poignant moments for me was when someone, there was a conversation happening around what someone should do if they find someone they've they love who mm-hmm. has passed away in, in their house. They come upon someone suddenly. And your advice is not to pick up the phone, mm. but to put on the kettle. Yeah. Well, really, the, the first thing is to sit down. So if you watch someone die in front of you, like they have a heart attack, then of course you would either do CPR or you would ring an ambulance unless they didn't want you to do that and you'd already had a discussion because they did not, they don't want to be resuscitated or they don't want to be taken to hospital, but they're more when someone's dying and on a trajectory. But so if, if someone has um, a life threatening experience, like they get electrocuted or they fall, then you would immediately call the ambulance, of course. But if you come downstairs and or you wake up in the morning and your partner has died in the bed or you come into the living room and they've had a fall or they're still sitting in the chair with the TV on from the night before and they're clearly dead and they cannot be resuscitated because they've been dead for too long, then most people panic which is a perfectly understandable response, and call the ambulance or call the doctor or call someone. But once you make that call, especially to the ambulance, you cannot stop that train of action. And they can't come and say, oh, yeah, well, you just take your time and, uh, you know, we'll go away and come back in an hour or two. So if you can start to, again, grow the capacity, just a little bit each day and think, now what would I do if I woke up and I found Dave dead? I would feel him, I would shake him, I would see that, you know, he and you would know by his temperature whether he's newly dead or long dead. And then the thing to do is just to stop, not to rush and phone anybody because you have a window of opportunity to be with their body and to allow your emotional response, to allow your nervous system to adjust to that shock and that situation. And you, the best thing to do is either to, you know, f- drop to your knees or find a chair or lay down or something to allow something to support your physical body. So we all know if we want to have a really good cry, we don't have it standing up. We throw ourselves on the bed like children do. They they want to have a tantrum, they throw themselves on the floor <laughs> and they're giving it all they've got. They're not busy putting any energy into supporting their physical body in an upright position. They're giving they're 100% <laughs> fully in the tantrum or mm. the crying, whatever it is. So if you can let your body rest in the chair, then you can allow sometimes that shock 
to just pass through from your mind mm -hmm. and your nervous system through your body and then you you can go oh my god and and you have this time to spend with that person and you will never get that time back and it's precious and so it's a really great thing to be able to just have presence of mind presence of heart presence of love to be with that person and take that time you can ring in an hour You can ring in 20 minutes. You can ring in two hours. You're not going to get into trouble. You just say, I just was in shock and I sat with them. And if there's, if it's a crime scene, then you will probably take a little bit of time. You wouldn't touch anything, but you would still take that time for yourself because everything is still going to happen. But what you're doing is great self care, especially if you've got other people you're going to have to support, like children then it means you can let that trauma pass through your body and out and then proceed. But I see a lot of people who are still traumatized by finding that person or how they receive the news of that death. They're still in the shock and the trauma of that. And some people even are still in the trauma of the diagnosis. So you see people have this sort of glazed over look and they're physically there but emotionally and energetically they're not there like anybody who's in a trauma response where the brain and the nervous system is stopping in order for you to be able to cope with the situation that you find because it, it, it's too much too soon and it's often something that you don't want to be happening So your body, your mind, your emotional system, your nervous system has to adjust to what is happening. And anybody who's experienced something like that, you can feel it moving all the way through your body and out if, you, if you're present enough to take that time. Mm. Zenith, I've spoken about this a couple of times on our podcast um, about when my dad took his life 10 years ago, I think it was, and how we're in, well, we're half... Kiwi half Australian. So he was in New Zealand yeah. and we got the call and uh, my sisters and I quickly went over there and, but experienced a very different cultural approach to death yeah. in a very short period of time yeah. where he was in a funeral home, yeah. had been wrapped up and makeup put on his face and there was, you know, plastic flowers in the corner and a beige room with, you know, really terrible synth music playing over yeah. these tinny speakers yeah. and and we got a short little hour or something to yeah. say goodbye yeah and uh and then when our extended maori family were there they just they sort of interjected and were like this is not how we do it that's right would you be willing to bring him home yeah. and follow the practices that we do mm. and then it was incredible because that was a whole process that Um, carries on there where the body's in the house and the whole community comes yeah. and sits with their body and us and they t and they speak to them and yeah. put gifts in the coffin yeah. and then we would you know be able to have laughs and cries with yeah. all of his community yeah. uh, and it was incredible and it was so so obvious the courageous and very present dealing of the experience and the power of the moment with those procedures compared to putting in a box 
in a building, yeah. saying goodbye, push it over there and just yeah. quickly do a service and, and away you go. So, so culturally with your work, is there a very clear line between sort of Western industrialized approach to death and perhaps First Nations approaches um, that you've experienced? Can I just in jump time? in really quickly? Because I just mm. have sort of a juxtaposition to your experience. The, my only other experience with death was when my grandma passed away and I was in Australia and I wasn't able to make it back for her funeral. And the lack of marking or um, experiencing her passing has been one of my only regrets, really, because I, I forget that she has died. Mm. I have yeah. no, there was no end point to mm. mark that experience. And so it feels like a bit of a black hole. There was, well, there it's was, a void. Yeah, it, it's a void. Yeah, yeah, because you haven't marked that moment. So I'd have to try and remember all the things that I want to address <laughs> to that, but because you spoke last, I just, so it's never too late to do a ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially now in COVID uh, times, a lot of people are unable to go overseas or even interstate mm. for the death of their person to to be with them while they're dying or to attend the ceremony. So a lot of people now are Zooming those ceremonies, which is fantastic because a lot of people who could never get there suddenly are able to get there by Zoom. But even if that death has been a while ago and passed, it's never too late to create ceremony. And I've been saying this a lot lately where I think, you know, a really good ceremony is worth 12 months of therapy <laughs> because you're dealing with the divine, you're dealing with the mystery, you're dealing with magic, uh, with subtlety, and you're dealing with your own internal world in a ceremony of transforming emotions from one thing to another. And really the ceremony and what you're talking about, Dave, is that process with the body uh, is really about the beginning of, of healing. It's about transforming emotions. So shock, sadness, sorrow, regret that you can't get there, whole range of things. You know, you can feel them all and speak to them and let them go. And sometimes in situations that you're describing here where, uh, people need to say, you know, I'm glad you're dead. I fucking hated you. Mm. You know, you made my life a misery. And now I'm free. And people need to be able to say that. And because uh, not all families are hunky-dory. You know? <laughs> and so when I walk mm-hmm. into a place because that people have invited me because their dad's just died or something, I don't say, oh, so sorry. I say, how is that for you? And sometimes then from a neutral place, people will say, oh, we're really glad he's dead. You know, he was suffering. His, you know, the last few years have just been terrible. It's been so hard to watch him suffer physically or emotionally. So you have to walk into that situation and see what you're dealing with. But the wonderful thing about ceremony is it just offers you an opportunity to go, even if it's the simplest thing, like having a photo and a candle and being somewhere in the room or outside in nature, writing a letter to that person, speaking out, you know, into the ether, you know, planting something. But what you need to do is think, what do I need to address? Or what purposes do I need that little ceremony to serve? And so you, for example, would think, now, 
I want to tell her how much I loved her. I want to tell her how important she was to me as a woman, uh, you know, whatever else you felt. And you want to express how terrible it was that you couldn't get there and how sad you are about that. And then you want to think, but what do I, where do I think happens when someone dies? Do I believe they become part of everything? Can I find her in nature? Can I find her in butterflies or, you know, little birds or the fish, whatever? So you really need to know what it is that that void is made up from. Mm. what it is that you haven't completed or what it is that you haven't undertaken even. Mm. And it can be very simple, but it's really worth doing. And so once a year, as you know, I do the Day of the Dead ceremony. And so people come because they've got a recent death or a really old death. So sometimes people, it's 30 years and they had a stillborn baby and they've never told anybody about it or something like that. And people come to honour that 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 connection, that life, that loss. Mm. And we have a need to mark things, which is why even when people are killed on the road, you know, you get those incredible roadside mm. memorials which serve as a reminder to, for people to drive safely, mm. you know, because it can happen like that but the the Maori approach to being with that person and all being in it together eating together sleeping together Mm. is very much what we have taken on here because I lived in New Zealand before I came to Australia and even though I didn't go to a tangi I heard about it and it just made so much sense to me and so for example in most states in Australia you can keep a body at home for five days So you can actually die in your own bed, do the paperwork, and then your body can stay as long as it's kept cool and kept in in the right condition without embalming uh, for five days. People can come and hang out, come and visit. They can, you know, come and eat together. They can drink. They can cry together. They can laugh together. And something so incredible happens during that time. You're really transforming all those emotions. You're honouring the person. Mm. You're honouring yourselves and each other. You're hearing stories, not just in an hour or an hour and a half at the ceremony. You've got days of people telling you what a great person they were or something small that they did for mm. them. Things You learn a lot about the person. And so by the time you put that body into the ground, you're ready to let it go. And so what I'm trying to offer in the ceremonies that I do is all of that condensed into an hour and a half Mm. um, because two hours is actually too long. An hour and a half is a perfect amount of time for a ceremony. It's not too long, but it's not too short. Like a lot of people get 20 minutes. But, you know, to have a vigil, to take the body home overnight, you know, these are all things that we are doing here as a matter of course now because people, you only have to experience it once or listen to me raving on on some podcast or the radio. <laughs> and once people know that's possible, someone else will say, hey, I heard it on the radio. You can keep them for five days. We just have to really look after their body so it doesn't deteriorate. Five days is actually a long time. 
three days is perfect amount of time. Mm. Five days is very long. I think time. that's how long we had our yeah. dad was three, maybe four yeah. at the most. But you know, you're ready to let it go, but also you can see that it's sort of empty. Mm. You know, and you're done. You're, it's like having mm. a really good cry. You just have to cry until it's you're spent, and then then you're ready for mm. it. it. Everything's out. So. Zen, I really feel like um, from this conversation, I just keep hearing in my head the line of us being able to live better by considering death more, yeah. you know, that that sort of defining nature of life is death. Yeah. It can be that line. It's what makes it so precious mm, and exactly. especially the people that we love. Mm. And that's something that I think... You know, it varies in the surfing experience because you can go out and surf tiny waves and and be relatively safe or you can go out in very large waves and be in a lot of danger. But there are those opportunities like you were touching on before with extreme athleticism or extreme pursuits Mm. that bring us to that edge and help define life by being at that vibrant edge. Yeah. Uh, which I think probably a, a lot of people who will be listening to this are people who surf or dive yeah. or or know that feeling yeah. and know what it brings to life. Yeah, it, but it's also a drug. I was about to ask <laughs> so, because because that can take on extreme <laughs> tendencies. That's right, because um, you want that hit yeah. over and over again and you have to go further exactly. and harder. So what's a healthy, in your experience in this area, are there any examples of a healthy dancing of that line that you can share with us that people might take away? Well, I suppose I I can't really because I'm not someone who is an extreme pursuit person. I mean, I've lived a full life and it involves a range of things. You've taken risks, though. I've taken some great risks and I've pitted myself, but not to that extreme, against the elements or with the elements, whatever mm. way you want to see it. Mm-hmm. But I just... What I think for life, as I say, I'm 63 now, I've lived a really great life, I think probably is to make friends with death and to allow, to know that it accompanies you. It's always with you. And it's the difference between life and death is one breath. That's all it is. And we're already living in our dead body, but we're alive. So it's something that is omnipresent for us, really. Bang. But what I would say is that the the more we go in and the more we're able to listen to that deep part of us that speaks, so what some people call intuition. So, for example, I imagine for surfers, sometimes there's a moment where you just think, just not going to catch that wave or just not going to go to that beach today, you know, and you don't. And something else might happen. But to really be paying attention to your deep knowing in any aspect of your life and when it speaks, to listen to it and be in tune with something. And that can be about a disease. It doesn't even necessarily, you know, sometimes you can get a a sort of inner feeling which says, you know, if you carry on like this, you're going to get sick. Mm. You know, smoking, drinking, drugging, partying fucking you know whatever you know anything to extreme but but you know when you're living on the edge there's a really big fine line of excitement and and you know you're really alive when you're dancing with death and that's you know that's a really exciting 
and fine dance. Mm. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. <laughs> mm. Just having this conversation makes mm. me feel like the, the work of death, the consideration of death, is like you've been saying the the inner work the deep inner work but also it is about community isn't it it's mm. one of the moments when as a culture we come together and we gather and we acknowledge a moment in time mm. and and i was also thinking about how our approach to death is maybe one element that makes our species unique i feel like there aren't are there any other species that prepare, you know, that prepare? Yeah. There are? Yeah, you've got lots of animals. I mean, not that I've researched this, but just off the top yeah. of my head, you know, you've got that whole elephant thing. Elephants apparently go back to somewhere where they die. Yeah. And I think a lot of animals have that awareness that they're going to die. And I think in indigenous cultures, a lot of people lay down to die and a lot of people walk away to die alone. And a lot of people will stop eating and drinking uh, when they know that they're going to die, whether they're fit and healthy or whether they're diseased and know they're dying. Because the body doesn't need food when it's dying. It doesn't need to be nourished. It needs to start to close down. And what I see watching people die well is that they pull in so they're not concerned about the issues of the world. They're not concerned about community issues. They're not concerned about their peripheral friends. Then they're not concerned about their family. Children normally last, unless you don't have children, and, and then it's usually someone. Sometimes it might be your animal that has been your constant and loving companion for many years. But then people pull in, and what they're doing is they're less and less attached to anything worldly or anything material, and they're pulling in in order to go out. And so if you're with someone who's dying, often people will say it's like they're coming and going. They're sort of there or they're not there. And it's sort of like the energy that makes us who we are is expanding out into the cosmos. And the Buddhists have a practice which is called the power practice where you the energy leaves through the top, the crown chakra, and when you're practicing for your whole life, you pull it back in. It goes out and you pull it back in. But when you're sitting with someone who's dying or you're dying yourself, you just visualize that energy, keep it going like a fountain, you know, going out the top of your head. And so when you see that or when you sit with someone who's dying well, and whatever that might be for them, it's not this, that there is no standard. Some people, it's, it's just a little thing. Mm. But when they go, there's almost a joy in the room. There's almost a relief. And, you know, it's magical. But our, our emotions often take us somewhere else. Mm. But often I can ask a room full of people when I'm speaking in public who had an experience with someone that they love that when they died they felt joy and they felt, <gasps> you know, like a big immense freedom and often people will do that and as they put up their hand they will be they will have this embodied feeling that goes back to that moment and they are radiating joy in that moment and it's sort of intoxicating and they all have it all the same and they'll look at each other and they're sitting there like that smiling to each other and that 
connects people, those shared experiences, just like the agony of some experiences are shared, you know, the joy of others are shared. And we, you know, you can do it alone, but it's a wonderful thing to be held in community and family, either by blood or by love. You know, I just see such incredible things. And so when I walk into any house or family, I'm bringing all of those experiences with me. And even in this conversation, I'm doing the talking. But all those families, all those people who have died, we all come to offer this into the conversation because I'm a body of my own experience, but I'm also a body of everybody else's experience, but they're not here to share it. But if it can be of any benefit to anybody, then we all offer that. Mm, Beautifully said. Mm. Just bouncing off that moment there where Lauren was talking about other species and the death experience. Just a few weeks ago at a break down the road from us here, a man who swims a lot at this one surf spot was out swimming and um, a dolphin came up, a lone dolphin with lots of scars and signs of age, uh, swam up to him and allowed him to touch its belly and then it swam away and then it came back and slid straight into his arms mm. and took its last breath oh with him wow and uh and it was this experience which you know dolphins are conscious breathers every breath is conscious they Mm. can't be put under anesthetic every breath is conscious they Mm. know that last breath is Mm. their last breath because they have to swim up for it yeah and it chose to not be alone in that moment to come to him and be held yeah for both of them yeah and every person who's heard that story and even now i've told every single person I know about it because it's so beautiful. It gives me goosebumps and everyone else responds in a way where it's almost like, oh, there is a beauty, an intense beauty in discussing death and talking about it with each other. And it's an amazing one for surfers, especially with that dolphin and human surfer relationship. because there's a lot of shared things there between species, which Mm. is a very rare thing in the world. Mm. But for me, just this conversation with you, it's beautiful and very strong. It just feels like a a very Mm. seldom discussed area of life. Mm. And when I was young, people would say to me, oh, God, that must be hard or that must be morbid or a range of things on that line and it was some were a little bit more challenging than others because of the circumstances or the distress in that family but overall it's just been oh my god you know just so incredible to have all of that learning without all the emotional suffering to accompany people who I'm not emotionally attached to, who I don't love, but I grow to love, but a different sort of love. And so, but I think it's like anything that you learn. You know, if, if life offers you something, then you sort of harvest uh, what it has to offer you and you share it. You can't keep it all for yourself. And so over the years, you know, I've just got lighter and lighter And even though I've seen such incredible sorrow and pain and suffering 
for people and resistance and a range of other things. I'm also sort of compelled to hold this experience of lightness so that I'm sort of like a reservoir so that if people want to tap into that, if they want, you know, a life raft in a choppy sea, if they want, uh, um, you know, something to hang on to when it's really like white water, then, you know, I'm just, I am that. Mm. And I'm not trying to be that. That's what death has done to me, that familiarity, that willingness to be there, sharing those experiences with everybody, watching their incredible courage and capacity, and because we live in community, seeing them, you know, a week later, months later, years later, you know, even people whose children have died, you know, finding yourself at a party with them, chatting on a few years later and, and you know, such incredible continuity that people do live on. And so I think language is very important. So I never say things like, oh, it's unbearable because I see people who bear that and live on it becomes part of who they are they live with that loss so things like words like completion words like uh you know oh it must be the worst thing in the world you know it's not the worst thing in the world and even so for example even the use of the word suicide about 12 years ago i've started to dissolve that out of my language because i don't think it's helpful for healing so, and you know, I know that when you were talking about your dad, you said that he ended his own life or he'd taken his own life. But I've found now, I generally say, that they killed themselves mm. because that's what suicide means in, in Latin, in another language. And when you say commit suicide, it's left over from an era when it was a crime to attempt to kill yourself. Because if, if, and the whole language around it comes from that era. So it's like commit homicide, genocide, infanticide, matricide, all of those things. So when you commit suicide, if you fail, you were left alive and could be prosecuted and go to jail for attempting to kill yourself. But if you succeeded, then you were dead and that was the end of it. So that failed and successful attempts are locked into a, a time when the government owned your life and you couldn't kill yourself, but the death penalty was in place and they could kill you for a crime. So the whole thing's pretty messed up. But what I find is that when I speak to people at the kitchen table or in the ceremony, I, I don't see people real at that expression. I say it gently and I say it with respect because I feel that it opens a pathway for them to start to look at coming to terms with what's happened, that that person has made an action. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to judge it, whether it was a good or a bad day, but they're they're dead and they made that action to kill themselves. And so as someone left behind who loved them, to be able to start to come into that awareness and move into an acceptance or an understanding or a tolerance even of that situation is going to be more helpful for the people left behind. Whereas the phrase, you know, commit suicide or suicide is sort of dead. 
it, um, <laughs> I've never said that before. Um, you know, I mean, it's like it, it doesn't grow anywhere. Mm. It doesn't open up anything. It's just mm. book. And it's, it's not so helpful for people in the next part of their journey, which is to, to live without that person physically in their life and also then to try and, and soothe that pain mm. and if they can move towards some sort of gentleness in a healing of that loss. Mm. So, so language I find very important around death and I think it's really something that we, People need to think about right before they just spurt things off. Mm. You know, to, to drop into a kindness, to drop in to appreciate what it is you're actually saying, and is that going to make it better or worse? Um, mm. You know, mm. or is that going to compound the sadness of that and the pain that that person really feels, or is it going to open up a pathway for something to ease? Mm. If we are walking alongside someone who is who seems to be on the trajectory toward death. How should we be treating these moments? What questions do you encourage us to grapple with before we can't ask them anymore? You mean if someone's dying? Yeah, well, my, my mom is yeah. on this okay. trajectory. I struggle to fit in all the conversations that I know I want to have someday. So, mm. you know, I struggle to know which questions are the most important questions to be asking in the time we have left. Yeah, so simply the questions that are right for you are, are the most important questions, whatever they might be in your relationship with whoever that person might be. But if I'm invited into a situation, I walk in and I'm with someone that I don't know who's going to die and there's going to be people living on, then if they've only got energy for one question and one answer, then I find the most useful question and the most sustaining uh, question and answer for after they've died is to ask them what they think will happen when they die. And they will give you an answer. It might be, oh, nothing. Or it might be something that you imagine, or it might be something that you couldn't possibly have imagined. But recently I just had it where a guy, his mom, she was elderly and frail, and she didn't want to deteriorate anymore. And so she decided that she would stop eating and drinking, and uh, she would just close down and die at home with his family. And they were all in there. And I knew his mom. And uh, she was a very ordinary, lovely person. And I went to see her. I just said, yeah, I'm coming to see you before you die. I'm coming to say goodbye and just, you know, see how you are. And behind me was sitting uh, my friend and his wife. And uh, I said, I've just got, you know, can I ask you a question? And she said, yeah. And she was sort of, she was sort of present. She was, you know, weakening just in a soft, gentle way. And I said, you know, what do you think will happen when you die? And with that, she, you know, joy is spontaneously arising. You can't make joy. It, it spontaneously arises, like when you see an old friend uh, that you're not expecting to see, and you get that ah feel. You know, you can't make that happen. You can't fake that. And so she, she had this arising of just this beautiful joy and she said oh you know my mum and dad 
will be there. And I heard them both start to sniffle and cry. And um, it was just the most incredible moment. And then the son said, and anybody else? And she said, yeah, my brother. And then he said, and what about dad? And she said, oh, yeah, and dad. And you could see that she was in this sort of small rapture of the imagining and the visualization in her own mind and heart of her parents, who had obviously died a long time ago. She was, you know, in her late 70s. Um, you know, her brother, I don't know when he died. Um, you know, her husband, the father of the son. And um, it was just so beautiful. And, and I, you know, we talked a little bit more. I said goodbye. I said, I probably won't see you anymore. I'm wishing you well. I hope it's an easy journey that's gentle and loving. And uh, the guy spent each night with her so that, and they said goodnight every night as if she might die during the night. He said, you know, he held her. And, and he said when she eventually died, so it took her 10 days to die and it wasn't painful. It was just really gentle and her body just started to close down and she slept a lot, but she was fully present when she was awake. And um, And in that moment, he said when she died in his arms, he just, you know, he was full of love for her and sad and all the emotions that came. But he said somewhere in that, he, he had this image of her energy and her face when she thought about, and he had to go there. He couldn't stay in his own thing. He had to go with what she thought would happen. And it, it he said it just brought him such incredible peace and comfort. Mm. And, um, you know, I just think that's such an incredible story. And, you know, she was just a really ordinary in that way that, you know, she wasn't surfing big waves. She wasn't, you know, living on that edge. But, you know, I just see that as one of the most beautiful and courageous people I've met mm. because you really, you're really walking that journey of dying as well as you can and taking care of, you know, the people that you love and the, the grandchildren were in it. They'd made a pitcher of water, a glass of water with a big red cross and a piece of cake, a big red cross, you know, don't eat, don't drink. And so the, and that was the family's way of bringing the children into that awareness and, and not keeping anything hidden from them. And, you know, that's what a family does. It does life together. And if you're lucky, you get to do death together. And so those children, that will be an ongoing conversation in that family. And those children, when their parents come to die, however old that might be, that, that learning from that incredible, courageous experience will sustain them in whatever comes. And imagine if all children got to have experiences like that and it's settled in them as a felt and known experience that you know it didn't it wasn't what you see on tv you know, it wasn't what you read about in the papers it can be a range of different things mm. yeah mm. what do you think happens when we die zen i don't care but what i i haven't spent 25 years you know, <laughs> working on that cold face and living on that edge so my thing is about being present right in every moment so that when i die i don't miss it so if there is a pop, I'm more interested in that experience of 
leaving the body because I think that that is a practice. And so because I imagine it would be something like orgasming. So I think sex is a great preparation for death because when you experience that either alone or with someone else, you know, you're completely expanding into a bigger energy, into a bigger field. And you're becoming one with everything, like you're becoming one with the mattress. You can't tell where your body ends and the mattress finishes. You can't tell where your skin ends and the other person is. You're dissolving into each other. And I imagine that it's something like that. And that's working really well for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, you know, I mean, you can, anybody can have any concept they Mm. want. But that's where I'm going because that's what my life teaches Mm. me. It teaches me that from being sexually active. It teaches me that from being with, you know, a large amount of people who are dying. And, yeah, it's it's looking good. So I'm I'm not concerned about what happened. I'm all about the moment. I'm all about the moment. And so... um, I do not want to miss that moment. So I'm present when I'm driving. I'm present when I'm in any walking down the street because if a car's going to come and take me out, I don't want to miss that moment, however it's coming. Special thanks to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Soul Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Miyashiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more about all of our Watershed Chats guests on Instagram at Water People Podcasts. You can listen to every episode and find some extras on our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com.